When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode... I'm talking to Annie Kirby about her literary novel, The Hollow Sea. Annie lives on the south coast of England, where she works part-time as a university researcher. She has an MA in creative writing from UEA and a PhD in American Studies. She is an award-winning short story writer and was one of the nine writers selected for Penguin's 2018 Right Now programme. In this episode, Annie talks openly about her personal experience of involuntary childlessness and how this novel was born partly from her frustration about how childless women were written, the clichés, harmful tropes, and often a miracle birth at the end. Annie speaks about changing this important and overlooked narrative, as well as her enjoyment of playing with structure, and how the Penguin Right Now scheme for marginalised writers led to her book deal. But before we get into that, here's Annie with an excerpt of The Hollow Sea. The day before they flee south across the hollow sea in a fishing boat with a mermaid painted on its deck. The woman and the girl sit on a breakwater at sunrise, legs dangling, eating buttered saffron buns. Something is coming. The woman knows. She pushes the knowledge down, deep down alongside her darkest secrets. It has become a particular skill of hers, honed since she came to this little island, to pretend bad things aren't happening. The girl feels it too, an intuition of something important waiting just around the corner. But her inkling has none of the foreboding of the woman's. So perhaps what she is sensing is only her birthday tomorrow, when she won't be seven anymore. The girl licks breadcrumbs and butter from her saffron-stained fingers. May I go to the beach, please? She goes down to the shoreline most days at low tide to collect treasure thrown up by the storms. Ossified driftwood, starfish, mermaids' purses, occasionally a dried-up seahorse or a whelk egg husk. The woman always permits it, yet there is a daily ritual, a dance of sorts that they must complete before the request is granted. What's the rule, little fairy? The girl dislikes it when the woman calls her fairy. She prefers her given name, but... For four years now, the woman has called her only by nicknames, has forbidden the girl to speak her true name aloud. Don't go beyond the tide line, says the girl, 
stay on the dry side of the sand. The woman frowns. What else, fairy? The girl is bored of the dance, but she answers anyway. The sea can burn. Stay away from the water. The woman nods her assent, watching as the girl hopscotches up the slipway, her satchel a flash of red bumping against her hip. Hi Annie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Hollow Sea. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, Annie, I think we've got lots to talk about today. And I, I feel like from day one, when I first read about your novel, I feel like there's so many parallels between our books and the beautiful covers, all the turquoise and gold. Like, I think there's there's a lot of um, similarities between our book as well. So that's going to be interesting to discuss all the themes and the characters in your novel today. Yeah, I do. I think there are so many similarities to our books. I'm still waiting for someone to put them together in a bookshop window. Yeah, we need a nice bookshop by the sea to have a beautiful sea-themed window. That would be perfect. So anyone out there that's got a bookshop, that's what we want. (laughs) So, Annie, can you start by telling us um, what The Hollow Sea is all about? So The Hollow Sea uh, tells the story of a woman called Scotty. Um, She's been through quite a lot of trauma in her life and she's been trying for a long time to to have a baby. She's been through uh, lots of unsuccessful rounds of fertility treatment. And she's at the point where she thinks she might want to stop, but her her husband, her lovely husband, wants to carry on. So she's going to try and carry on for him. Um, but she's really, you know, it's really kind of affected her her health and her and she's dealing with some other trauma as well. Um, she's um, she's still kind of mulling over this situation about being stuck between like a rock and a hard place because she can't face any more fertility treatment, but she also can't really face a future where she isn't a mum. Um, so she's uh, she's just browsing online one day and she stumbles across a photograph of an island um, which has a label on to say that it's an island of St. Hia, but uh, which is an archipelago in the North Atlantic, um, but, but not which specific island. But she feels very strongly drawn to this island. Um, and as um, an adult adoptee, she was adopted when she was eight or nine years old. She can't remember much detail of her life before that she doesn't have a life book or anything like that she starts to think that this island might be something to do with her past because she's so strongly drawn to it um so she leaves IVF she leaves her marriage and heads off to this archipelago in the middle of nowhere to try and hunt down this specific island um that she has this photograph of so once, once she's on the island, she becomes drawn to the story of the local witch who's known um, as Thora the witch. Um, they burn an effigy of her once a year um, at a festival. She's known as being a murderess and a baby stealer. Um, she becomes drawn to that story and to other uh, myths and folklore of the islands. Um, So the islanders really warn her against examining the past too closely, but she does begin to unravel the truth of Thora's story and in doing so starts to sort of unravel her own truth and her own past and her own future as well. And your story has got such an interesting origin because I know that initially years ago you were working on this idea of a remote archipelago and you were thinking about mythology but there was something about the story that just wasn't working. And I, I know you kind of put it away 
and and I, I I get the sense that it was a story that kept bothering you and kept tapping at you and you thought I want to do something with it but I don't know what and it was only later when you revisited the story that you and revisited the setting that you found a way to include these elements as well so what was it that about this initial idea that kept staying with you and you didn't want to give up on it forever it was definitely the location um so this other novel that I had written um and tried for many years to write and to make work and it didn't ever quite gel it had a completely different storyline um and a different cast of characters but it was set in the same location um as the hollow sea is set although the archipelago was called something else but all of the individual islands and the location um I built that world and that world stayed with me even the, the bits of the novel that didn't work left me but the part of the novel I think that did work was the location and the setting um so when I started to write the hollow sea and I wrote the first chapter and I realized that it was set in this location so I went back had a look at the old novel and it definitely definitely belonged in the bottom drawer <laughs> but um I was kind of really happy to go back to that world and it felt like a really comfortable place to go back to. So that's um, that's how it happened to still be in the book. Um, so there's not much about the storyline that's similar, um, but but in terms of uh, place and maybe some of the mythology is quite similar as well. Mm. So. I, I have a very similar experience when I was writing my novel in that. Similar to you, I had the setting and I, I couldn't really make it work and... I decided to stop writing it and try something new. But sometimes I think when you're obsessed by an idea and you can't put it down and you keep coming back to it in your work, that's when you know you've got something good. And I think with your setting, it's so vivid and evocative. And, you know, it's a fictional place, this St. here, but everything about it is so richly told. So how did you create the sense of place then? Was it, I mean, I know you live fairly near the sea. So was it, it was you using the, the land where you live? How did you kind of come up with the, this fictional place? I have always lived by the sea, except for one year of my life. When I, I lived in Albuquerque and I, I hated being, I loved the mountains and the desert, but hated being so far away from the sea. Um, but I've lived in lots of different seaside places um, and they all have a slightly different character not just in terms of the town and the people, but the beaches whether and, and the colours of the sand and the shells and the sound of the sea as it moves across the pebbles or the sand. Uh, the sea in each place has a different rhythm and character. Um, so I was really interested in that kind of concept of, I guess, of, of the sea is like one and it's huge and it covers you know however many however much of the world that it covers um I can't remember my geography lessons it's a lot um <laughs> but it's also very individual um and I just I really kind of like that idea of having it as a character in the book um and as it being as it, it being as complicated as the person and having as much hidden as a person does as well so that that idea really really appealed to me and what about your kind of descriptive language? I mean, I had to write a lot about the sea and the weather and things like that. Did you ever reach a point where you were like, 
can't think of any other ways to describe the sea. It's a really good question, actually. Um, and I think I've made it easier on myself by having and being very deliberately having each seaside location be quite different um, than the other. So at, at times, Scotty is living in different seaside towns in England. Um, and then there's all the different islands in the in the archipelago. Um, but I made sure that each one was very different. So that helped me a lot in terms of not repeating myself yeah. <laughs> endlessly. Um, just because they all had, it was like talking about a different person each time mm. for me. Um, so I think that helps a lot. I did have um I did have a wonderful email from a reader saying that they tried to look St. here up on a map and couldn't find it. So that was absolutely the best compliment. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It felt so real. <laughs> yeah, so everyone's disappointed that they can't get a boat there now, I think. <laughs> so you mentioned how important folklore and mythology were when you were kind of first starting to write. And I know that that was a big inspiration for you. And I, I love the way it's woven into the story in quite a magical way. So what is it about folk and myth that really appeal to you? I especially love um, sea myths and creatures or beings that kind of move between the land and the sea worlds. Um, and I really, I, that's always appealed to me. Um, so before I even started writing, I knew a lot about selkies, which are, um, I'm sure most people listening will know that they're seals in the water and can peel their skins off and become a human form in land. And I knew about uh, fin folk from Orkney. Um, and I knew about Meros, um, which is from Irish sea mythology. Um, and they, they travel again between the land and the sea worlds by means of a magical hat. So I had lots of those stories in my mind anyway I kind of already knew them um and I was just I suppose I was in a in a transitional place in my life where I was between life hadn't quite worked out how I planned it to go and so I was kind of like in this space between a past and a future I suppose and that I suppose I'm not necessarily that symbolic of a writer or not deliberately so but I really that symbolism of, of moving between the, the sea and the land really appealed to me um, but I did decide in the end that I would create my own mythology for the story um, just because I didn't want to disrespect anyone else's stories any culture's mm. stories um, by moving them or changing them in the way that I needed to for the for the books I decided to create my own um, and had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah I was going to ask you was it challenging to have to a come up with your own mythology and make it feel like it was pre-existing but also you used it in a really contemporary way and was that a difficult thing to do? Um, the actual creation of the mythology uh, was the best part of writing the book for me. I had uh, just, for me, that's the fun part of writing. It's just just letting your creativity go wild. And obviously I had kind of like, like the, the roots of, of having that knowledge about mythology and certain mythological beings um, to back me up. So that side of it, I think, was maybe the easiest bit of the process for me um making it fit within a kind of a contemporary realistic narrative was 
the more challenging part. Um, so what I tried to do um, was to let readers make their own mind up about what was going on. Um, so what I really wanted was um, for, for somebody who, who was kind of very interested in, in the mythology side could, could make a choice about perhaps those certain things in the book without giving too much away in terms of the plot, but certain things in the book really happened. Um, but I also wanted there to be an option for a logical scientific <laughs> reason for the things that might have happened as well. So um, that was that was the way that I tried to bridge the gap between this, the kind of the, the, myth, the mythological and the, the quite realistic side of the novel was just to leave it open and let readers make their own decisions. Mm. I, I mean, I love that. And I'm really attracted to writers who use mythology in that way. Um, I kind of bang on about it enough. And uh, when I do interviews and things, people like Kirsty Logan, who who use mythology and fairy tale and folklore in a really interesting and fresh way. And I think you really achieved that with um, your characters and your mythology that you invented. So I want to talk a little bit more about Thordis or Thor, Thora, who is your kind of witch style character. I want you to give us a little bit more, tell us a little bit more about Scotty and Thordis and the kind of parallels between their stories. Well, um, Scotty, as I've already mentioned, uh, she's, the, she's the main character, the viewpoint character for most of the book. Um, so she's uh, running away from IVF and various traumas in her past um, and I don't mind saying that she doesn't have a baby by the end of the book. Um, and that was really important to me that I was writing um, a story about somebody who's coming to terms with not being able to become a mum. And that's still the position at the end of the book. Um, and the parallel with Thora or Thordis, Thordis is her, is her, her true name, is um, that she also... Um, suffered from not being able to become a mother and in a, in a way lived a very different life um, to Scotty but I had I wanted to have those two very different characters both coming to the to the ends of their stories without having had a child um, but it was really important to me that they were very very different people so Scotty I think is quite introspective a bit on the moody side I'm making her sound terrible. She's also uh, she's also kind of like a kind person, um, and she has a she has her good qualities as well. And the same with Thordis. She's brave and she's really strong, and she can be selfish but also selfless. She can be vain, but also uh, really kind. And she surprises herself sometimes with her with her kindness too when she becomes a piano teacher and she's teaching children to play the piano. So it's something. I've noticed, and I think we'll probably talk about it in a minute, about childlessness, but something I notice is that childless women are quite often a bit one-dimensional in films and, and sometimes in books too. And I really wanted to create two very different childless women who had two very different journeys towards that status or that condition, um, but who also felt very real. Yeah, and I want to touch on this um, overarching theme that you have of childlessness and infertility. And I know it's a really personal story for you. And one of the main reasons you wrote this book was because you felt like it was sorely lacking in fiction and that 
we don't see these stories we don't see these characters we 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 tend to have a a miracle birth at the end and i wondered whether you could tell us a little bit more about the importance of this novel for you in in terms of in terms of this um background and this theme so i spent quite a long time of my life uh trying to become a mum you know re- a really significant length of time and it was you know quite a complicated story that I won't bore you with but what I found is when I was coming to the end of that journey and starting to come to terms with the fact that it wasn't going to happen I couldn't really find that version of a story anywhere in film or, or tv or in novels um there was almost always if the childless character was a nice person they almost almost always got some kind of miracle child whether that be through IVF or supernatural or floats down the river or something (laughs) like that there was almost always something like that Um, whereas um, if the childless person is not a nice person then they end up kind of bitter or a child stealer I'm thinking um Rebecca de Mornay in the house, the hand that rocked the cradle, you know, the crazed nanny trying to, you know, breastfeed somebody else's baby. Um, or they just become a really cold and bitter career woman. And um, and kind of I don't really have any issues with any of those things being in novels, but it, it was that I couldn't really find any examples at all, or very, very few, where a perfectly normal <laughs> nice childless person is still childless at the end of the book um so um and I joined you know I'm in quite a few groups of support groups where other childless people have talked about this issue and and um, you know we've talked about miracle babies um and and how often it, it comes up and and how often how much we would like to sometimes and I so I love some books that have miracle children in them so I mean, the snow child, um, where the couple builds a child, a girl out of snow and she comes to life. I love that book. It's not that I dislike books that have that in. I just thought that it would be nice to have some books and to show that you can have a satisfying conclusion to a book that doesn't involve the main character having a baby and that the main character can transform in some way as well without having that experience of becoming a parent. I can absolutely see why childbirth and parenting is an appealing thing to to have in a book because it's just such a huge transformational change in people's lives. Um, But I think I think we can do better. I think we can tell more stories and different stories. And that's what I was trying to do. Mm, And you're so right. It's just having that range of stories and that representation. And I think publishing does move quite slowly and we do see change in terms of what story is being told but I'm sure there are certain people that still feel that their story isn't being told and it's really refreshing to read this book that has a character in that is childless and then doesn't have a child but I really feel like her Scotty's emotions and and Thordis' emotions are so true and so genuine obviously because it's such a personal story for you and I think I hope that people will read this and think about language they use or the way they talk to people and there there are several scenes in the book where Scotty has to you know grin and bear it and tries to change the topic and it's it's something we don't see very often in fiction and I do hope that 
if people read it, it might give them pause for thought and and maybe consider how they question women and and whether it's also women who don't want children. You know, it's it's sometimes how we just make that assumption that that's the the natural thing that a woman is supposed to do, and there's no there's no nuance there. And I think what this book does is it's very fresh and and refreshingly so. Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One thing I want to talk about is something that you do I thought was so interesting. And that's um, the story is split into Scotty's chapters and then um well it's a split into three sections but I won't talk too much about the third section but we see Scotty's story and Thordis's story but one thing you do that's really clever is that Thordis's story is told backwards so it's we know the end of the story right at the beginning and I loved it because once I finished the book I went right back to the beginning and read those chapters again because I felt like I wanted to read them because it had been a while since I'd I'd read them and I wanted to remind myself of her whole story and it was such a great technique and I don't know a great structure so I wondered what made you what made you choose to do it that way I suppose as a writer and as a reader actually I'm I'm quite attracted to books that play around with structure a bit um so um so for example uh Evie Wilde's book All the Birds Singing uses quite a similar structure um, but mu- actually much more boldly than than I did and I've always really admired that book 
I love The Blindfold by Siri Husfet, where she, uh, the book has three parts telling um, stories about the same woman and you don't realise until you get to the end that all of these stories were taking place at the same time. Um, you think that they've happened consecutively, but they were all happening in her life at the same time. So I love, I, I kind of love that kind of playing around with structure. Um, now I, I don't like crime, but I think if I was a crime writer, I would definitely be a how done it writer rather than a who done it. So right. I, you know, I tell you the murderer on page one, <laughs> um, and then piece it all together. So for me, that's kind of um, for, as a writer, I, I can't, I don't really do twists and that kind of thing. For me, the the fun is in piecing piecing the puzzle together rather than being surprised or creating a surprise at the end um and I didn't know when I started that that um story was going to go backwards but her death was the first thing that I wrote before I plotted the novel or before I knew what it was going to be um and I think I thought it was probably going to be a prologue and that we would jump to a different part of her life um but I just found myself thinking about, I wonder what happened the day before she died. And then that was the next of her scenes I wrote. And then I thought, I wonder if I could just keep going backwards. So I plotted it backwards and wrote it backwards. And then I plotted it forward to make sure all of the kind of the arc and the plot points worked in both directions. Um, so I think if you wrote, if you read her, her story in, chronological order I think it would still work it was difficult especially um, during structural edits for example when uh, Cleo my lovely editor wanted me to make the chapters shorter and cut them in half that was easy to do with Scotty's chapters <laughs> not so easy to do in the backwards version mm. um, because just something about the way that you have to structure the chapter to make it work that doesn't lend itself to cutting it in half um, so um, I loved doing it that way, except when I was doing structural edits and, I, and then I cursed myself and said, I'm yeah. never, never doing this again. <laughs> even, now, I, even now, I'm writing something new now and I, it, I don't think it will be a backwards narrative, but I'm still quite drawn to that because it was kind of a fun way to slot the different bits of the story mm. together. Yeah, I, as a reader, I really enjoyed it because there's an element to it where you're slightly confused about things but you know you trust that you're going to find out later and things and reveal themselves but it's like you learn things in a chapter later that's happened before and it's it's I love that kind of mystery of it but also it's a good little brain exercise I think and it's a fun part of the reading experience as well but I can yes I can imagine the challenge of writing it but also the fun part of writing it too. I really love the one one of the things I really liked about doing it like that was foreshadowing because I do love to do a bit of foreshadowing and actually it's really easy to do foreshadowing when you're writing it backwards because <laughs> your character already knows everything that's happened so they just mm. have to think back <laughs> um, so it's a really um it's a really neat neat way an easy way to to sneak in some foreshadowing mm. So I want to touch on your writing journey from when you first started writing to now and ask you questions about your your process too. So I wondered whether your love of writing began at a very early age 
Um, have you always wanted to write a novel? Definitely. I was, I've always been a writer every, ever since I was, well, ever since, ever since I could write, I suppose. Um, I, you know, I was always, English was always my topic at school. And I went to, um, I went to quite an unusual primary school where we were basically allowed to wander around and do whatever we wanted. I didn't have much of a timetable. So I was always in the English room writing stories. Um, so um, I never really did very much with any of them. Um, and then just sort of quite randomly, I was in my early 30s and I was at a point in my life where I was between homes and jobs and relationships I was I thought I wonder what would happen if I applied to do master's degree in creative writing so just applied on a whim and I got in so that was the first time I'd ever met any anyone else who wrote didn't have I didn't have a writer's community it was pre-social media it, it was just amazing to have a peer group of other writers to to share my writing with and to get feedback and to read their work and to feedback on it I'd never had anything like that before um, and to be honest I have no idea how I got on that course because I'm sure my sample that I submitted was terrible because I can think now about how much I improved when I had some other writers around me mm. um, obviously they saw something in it which I'm very grateful for I've always I always thought that I would write a novel but you know, it's, I think when you say that to the careers advisor at school, well, I think I was advised to go into journalism and I never I, I never wanted to be a journalist. I'm too shy to ask questions. <laughs> I couldn't possibly ask a question or interview somebody like that. So um, so I, I never pursued professional writing in any other form. It's it's always been stories for me. And you did your master's at UEA. Do you think that the writing community was the kind of most important part of that course? What do you think was, what do you think was most valuable for you on doing a master's? I think for me, it was definitely having the writer's community around me. Um, it obviously helps doing workshopping. It obviously helps you um, edit and critique your own work as well as editing and critiquing other people's work. So definitely, uh, you know, the quality of my prose improved. But uh, for me, definitely, it was the friends I made there, uh, you know, some of whom I'm still close to and we still share work. Um, but just being, also just being in an environment where writing was my first priority, that's what mm. I was supposed to be doing. It wasn't, I wasn't doing it to avoid the housework or or anything like that. Um, you know, that was what, what I was supposed to do. And that's, that, I don't know, that's quite a revelation for someone from my background where um, writing wouldn't be really seen as a proper job or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I'm so glad I did, it. I did it on a whim, but I'm so glad that it, it worked out for me. And you were also one of nine writers that were selected for Penguins Right Now programme. And I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about the programme itself and um, how you applied and why you applied and what that gave you in terms of support towards your publication journey. So there have been um, three or four intakes of writers on right now and my I was in uh, the 2018 intake and there were nine writers and also an, an illustrator. Again I always do things on a whim, this is sounding really awful, I applied on a whim as I do 
um, you know, the day before the deadline, I wrote actually the first chapter of what the hollow sea was what I wrote, um, sent it off, thought I'll never hear anything. So the right now scheme is specifically um, for writers who come from backgrounds that are underrepresented in publishing. Um, so writers who are from ethnic minorities, writers who have a disability, writers who are working class backgrounds. Um, they don't um, specify, but you can explain why you think that you, you would benefit for or qualify for the scheme when you enter. I got through to the workshop stage where I think, you know, 100 people go along and they give you lots of details on the, the inner workings of the publishing world, which is really useful to have. Um, I think I, I sent them another 5,000 words and got some feedback on that, which was great, really useful feedback. And then I got to the next stage and they needed a bit more writing from me. So I sent that and then I got to the shortlist and they wanted the rest of the book, which I hadn't written. <laughs> um, I was actually on writing retreat at the time. Um, so um, quite fortunately, I had a bit of time and, I, and I'm quite a slow writer normally, but I managed to get sort of get 20,000 words to them for the deadline and then was amazed um, to get on the scheme. Um, and while, while all this was happening, my father was dying. Um, and it was the day of the um, interment of his ashes that um, there's a little beep in my pocket from my phone, which made everybody annoyed. <laughs> but it was the, the email coming through to let me know that I would got onto the scheme. So that was lovely. Well, I like to think my dad had something to do with it. And then after that, how did you go from the right now scheme to getting published? So... Um, once I was on the Right Now scheme, um, I was matched with a mentor at uh, Penguin, Michael Joseph. So initially, my mentor was um, an editor called Jessica Leek, who was absolutely amazing. And then she went on maternity leave, and I was matched with uh, Cleo Cornish, who is now my editor. So by the time we got to the end of the programme, I'd written the first draft of the novel. She wanted to buy it. Um, so I was very, very lucky because um, I needed an agent in order to go into that negotiation process. So um, Cleo introduced me to some agents. I signed with my agent, Sue Armstrong, who understands the book perfectly, just as Cleo did. Um, so I was very lucky because I avoided that whole process of querying and being on the bottom of the slush pile. So I think it took about two weeks from Cleo giving me a ring to say she'd like to buy the book, please, to me signing with my agent and then signing a deal um, with Penguin Michael Joseph. So it was, uh, that's the sort of thing that only happens to other people, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So um, things like that don't happen to me. So that was, you know, amazing and surreal. Um, you know, and a week later, I was in the bookseller with my announcement. It all happened very, very fast. Um, so, so, yeah, so, you know, that's like a direct line from having been on the the right now scheme to getting my publication deal and I think what that did for me um is just having that a, a mentor to to kind of help me with the structure and to know that I was going in the right direction with the writing but also I didn't think my book was ready to send to agents so when Cleo was saying I want to buy your book you need to get an agent I was like oh, I, don't, I don't think it's ready yet <laughs> she said no well it is <laughs> um 
uh, so if I if I kind of hadn't had that, I think maybe I would still be here now, putting it through its three hundredth draft, and thinking oh, it's not quite ready. <laughs> so um, quite useful for me to have have that little bit of confidence. Mm. Say I, I feel I feel like a, a lot of writers will relate to you feeling like it's not ready because I certainly felt the same with my book. And I I even when my agent said she was ready to send it to editors. I was thinking, really, are you sure? Can't we do another round of edits? You know, I think it's quite a common um, feeling. Um, I wanted to also say, I made the shortlist for the first year of Penguin right now, and I'd really encourage anyone to apply for it because I think it's a, a great opportunity. And the I think the first selection stage where you get to spend the day with lots of other writers and you get to meet people. And I got to meet uh, Kit Deval and uh, Nikesh Shukla and some really amazing people that at that point in my career, I had no idea who they were. And now I look back on it and think, why did I not use that opportunity more and chat to them more? But yeah, I think schemes like Penguin right now and others that crop up, honestly, if you're, even if you're not sure that you're ready, do what Annie did, apply on a whim, and give it a go because you might get someone with it and they're really great schemes to open up the publishing industry a bit more so I'd uh, fully recommend that as well. I think it's also worth saying that you, your work doesn't have to be perfect um, they're looking for people to mentor so mm -hmm. for so they're looking for the potential in your work rather than something that's ready to be published. Yeah definitely they want to work with with their mentees so the idea is that as long as they can see a spark in there somewhere then you've got the potential so even if you don't feel ready just pretend you feel ready and go for it yeah. so Annie I want to ask you is there anything that you feel you know now as a debut author that you wish you'd known all those years ago before you started um, I suppose uh, the thing that we've just talked about that it actually doesn't have to be perfect um, even actually not just for applying for a mentoring scheme but I think even um, for applying to, to submitting to agents it should be as good as you can make it but you should also know that it's not perfect and you should know what's not perfect mm. so that you can it, it will help you find the right agent knowing that they have the same vision for the book as you do and help you find the right editor as well on submission um, so it's um definitely make it as good as you can but also understand that that's a million miles away from what your final finished book is going to look like so I think I might have liked to have known how many how many rounds of structural edits uh, I mean maybe you wouldn't have wanted to know that because maybe that's a terrifying thought um I think main, I think mainly the thing that I would have liked to know is that a lot of things in publishing are out of your control. So what you should do is focus on telling your story to the best of your ability um, and let other people worry about the other stuff. Your job is the story. And yes, there are things you can do to help your book, like, you know, like going on social media and promoting it and things like that. But in the whole, much of what happens is out of your control um to focus on the writing and make that your your main job and that sounds like a statement of the obvious but 
I think it's a really good thing to remember that um, all of the hoopla is just that. Um, yeah. And the I, writing is the important thing. I totally agree. Like, your job is the writer, and that's it, really. And as long as you write a good book, the rest is a bit of luck, and it's a bit of publishing doing their thing. And it's easier said than done to let it go and not to worry about it. But I think it's a, a route to madness if you start panicking about the things that you can't control. So finally, I know you've briefly touched on it already. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're writing next? Book two, the dreaded book two. Uh, book two, I'm actually really excited about book two. Um, it's been it's been percolating for about 10 years because I, I wanted to write it but didn't feel that I quite have the skill and maybe still don't quite have the skills to do what I want to do. It's a feminist ghost story, time slip, body spot set in late 16th century Italy and early 17th century London uh, based on the uh, life of a woman called Vittoria at Coromboni, who was assassinated in 1585. Wow. So um, I'm really excited about it. Still trying to fit all the pieces together and, and work out how to tell the story. So I'm at that point now where I know what the story, in my head, I know the story, but I'm just trying to fit it onto a page in a way that makes sense to other people who aren't <laughs> in my head. Well, it sounds really ambitious, but if anyone can do it, it's you, Annie, and I'm sure it will be as beautiful as the Hollow Sea, and I look forward to uh, hearing more about it in future. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I've really loved chatting to you, Chloe. That was Annie Kirby talking about her literary novel, The Hollow Sea, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.